tour guide tell all listeners welcome back it is january we are excited to be in your ear holes again uh we um are back for some more super fun uh talk about american history dc history women's history all things scandalous exciting and fun and interesting and uh we are excited to be back with you so as always i'm rebecca i'm becca and together we are the, the Rebecca's. Rebecca's. <laughs> Nailed so it. Good. <laughs> so good. Hi, all. It's January still, and um, we are just so tickled to be back with you. We just wanted to say hi and thanks to all our patrons, as always. Uh, we are so grateful for your support, and uh, we want to hear what you want to hear about. So definitely pitch the pod. Let us know sort of where you're at and what you're interested in, and we will add it to our schedule for the upcoming couple weeks and months. Uh, but today... We are going to, so we're going to talk about something that is near and dear to the heart of one of us, and that would not be me. Um, Rebecca, which is me, I'm from Connecticut, so I'm the New Englander here, uh, proudly. And Becca is t- proudly a Texan. She's from Houston. And so we're going to talk about a little Texas stuff, y'all. It's going to be very exciting. We have done almost no sort of Texas history. We've touched ever so briefly kind of on the annexation of Texas when we've talked about uh, sort of Congress in the 1830s and 40s and sort of Texas vaguely as a frontier and a political talking point, but we've not really delved into any big Texas um, topics except for Barbara Jordan. We talked about Barbara Jordan, who's one of my all-time most favorite women in America, American and Texas history. But today, thanks to a wonderful um, listener, we had a request to talk about a very famous Texas topic, uh, the Alamo. Yeah. And when we got the request, I, the New Englander, was like, I don't really know that much about the Alamo, and I would like to learn more you things. You didn't learn about and it in fourth and seventh grades? So here's the thing that's interesting to me as a New Englander. Like, growing up, we just did American history, and then I found out as an adult that, like, other places in the country, like California does a year or two of, like, California history, Texas does Texas history, and other states do, like, their Virginia does thing. Virginia history. Virginia does Virginia history. But, like, Connecticut, like the history of Connecticut is the history of this country. Like, okay. Like my town was founded literally 10 years after the pilgrims landed on the rock. Like, so there's no like Connecticut history. It's all the same. Um, and so apparently there's a whole, like, and we didn't apparently spend too much time talking about Texas history, even in Connecticut, because the Alamo is something I know exceedingly little about. So I'm excited to, for, and I have deliberately kept myself ignorant in the ramp up to this. Like I haven't done a lot because I don't want to spoil uh, what is definitely going to be very fun. Um, I'm going to tell you what I know, and then Becca is going to laugh and tell you all the ways in which I'm wrong. <laughs> so um, one reason I'm excited for this topic is even if you're not from Texas, you've probably heard of the Alamo, right? There's a bajillion movies. Um, about the Alamo. It gets referenced many places. It's a very famous tourist destination. It's, I mean, like the pop culture extends far beyond just if you watch a movie about the Alamo. I mean, right, we've all seen uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Like there are just a lot of references to the Alamo, a lot of places. So like, even if you're listening to this uh, abroad, right, you probably heard of the Alamo, but I think that um, even if you grow up in Texas, right, our understanding of the Alamo is pretty vague. Um, before we jump in, just a little sort of notes about this episode and some context. It was really hard for me to pare this down to just the Alamo because to understand the Alamo, you have to understand a little bit more broadly what's happening kind of in the 1820s and 1830s. So we are going to be doing some broad strokes to lead up to the Alamo. Um, We could definitely talk more in depth about America's early push out West and what that meant. Um, We're pretty much just not talking about the impact on indigenous people today. We're really focusing specifically on um, what happened sort of between the Mexican government and American immigrants to Texas. But please rest assured that there were people living in that land before the Mexican government was there, before the Spanish government, before the Americans come. The other thing is just for clarity and simplicity during the conversation, I am going to broadly talk about anybody who's fighting for Texas independence as a Texan, because that's just easy. It's easy to say Texan. And anyone fighting for the Mexican army under Santa Ana, we're going to call Mexicans. The thing is, this is all Mexico at this point. 
So technically, everybody involved in this is living in Mexico and thus a Mexican. But for clarity, Mexicans are those fighting for the Mexican army. Texans are those fighting for Texas independence. If you do some reading and research on this, you will see the word Texican or Texian, which is typically used to describe the American settlers in Texas. And then, of course, there are Tejanos, which are typically uh, is the term used to describe a native born Mexican living in Texas. And so just to clarify, we won't use Texian and Tejano too much. Uh, so we're not getting too into the nitty gritty there, but those are important phrases. And then broadly, I think it's important to keep in mind that almost 50% of the men who will ultimately enlist to fight for Texas are going to come from the United States after this war for Texas independence has already begun. So many of the people who are going to fight this fight, including many of the heroes of the Alamo, are going to be people who had not been in Texas very long. And so I think it's important to sort of dispel this myth of like these long time settlers finally throwing off the shackles of Mexican oppression, um, but rather a lot of people who see an opportunity and come to fight in this fight. And that includes about 200 volunteers from the United States Army. So that's just sort of some context about wording and phrases and what I mean when I say Texan in this episode. Rebecca, tell me what you know about the Alamo and uh, please tell me it's not just from a John Wayne movie. No, it. I don't even know that much, honestly. Like, I learned things from what you just said, honestly. Like, I know so little. It's, this is sad. This is hard to admit. Okay, so here's what I know about the Alamo. I know that it is in San Antonio, Texas. I know that it still stands, and I know that it's a uh, major tourist draw. Although I get the sense that people are disappointed when they see it, and I don't really know why. Um, I believe that before it was famous, it was a religious structure, maybe like a mission. Uh, and at some point it becomes the site of one of the most famous last stands in history. And I think that point is at some point in the mid 1830s, maybe late 1830s. I don't actually know. Uh, I am not at all clear on who's involved, who the combatants were, what the larger war was, if there was a larger conflict. I don't really know. I do know that the good guys, at least as far as the Texas history is concerned, the good guys were in the Alamo. And I maybe it's the Mexican War. I don't know. I'm not really sure what was happening there. Um, and because it's a last stand, like everybody dies or like everybody but one or two people die. Like that's kind of what a last stand is. I know that Davy Crockett was involved. I think Santa Ana was involved and maybe Sam Houston but I'm unclear about that. Uh, that is literally, that, that might also be because those are like the three names that I know of from that this era of Texas history. So they may not actually all be involved at all. I don't know. That's all I got. That's actually, I think, hits on a lot of what people do know. Um, <laughs> I will say that having um, gone to San Antonio many times and visited the Alamo, I took Matt, my husband there, uh, a couple years ago when we were down in Texas for a wedding. And it's the classic thing of you see it in movies or you imagine it as this huge structure because it was this last stand military battle and you see it and you're like, oh, it's like a one story building. Like, and it, it covers a little bit of land, but it's not huge. So I think similar to the way we often, I think have visitors disappointed by the White House sometimes and its scale um, because of sort of film and TV. I think that's one of the big disappointments with the Alamo. So you were, you were good, you were warm on a lot of stuff, um, close on a lot of things. Um, and yes, I think so much of uh, sort of our, our interest in the Alamo deals with the fact that it feels like this last stand and there's a lot of sort of martyrs to the cause. To try to give a little bit of just pullback on how we get to the Alamo, it's important to note, and this is something we all learn in school in Texas, is there are six flags that have flown over Texas. So Texas has been a part of six nations. I'll use that kind of broadly. Is that why the amusement park is called Six Flags? Yes, it is. That is exactly why it's <laughs> called Six Flags. Um, so Six Flags. Um, what is Texas today was part of the Spanish Empire, the French Empire, the Mexican uh, the Mexican government. It was a Republic of Texas briefly. It is, of course, part of the Confederacy um, when the Civil War comes around. And then, of course, it has been part of the United States. So Texas has changed hands and been a part of a lot of different places, which is also why um, 
of the population and the history and region to region has such variety because there are roots in a lot of different European governments and are roots in a lot of different waves of people coming to Texas. What we're talking about, though, is sort of the fight for Texas independence, which is 1835 to 1836. This fight, this revolution, if you want to call it that, has been building for about a decade with clashes between the Mexican government and American settlers, as well as Tejanos, who are allying themselves with these sort of new waves of Americans. Uh, Mexico opens up to American immigration very broadly in the 1820s, and huge waves of people come sort of lured by cheap, abundant land. And there's all these programs, including an empresario program, to sort of encourage land speculation. So the population of Texas explodes in the 1820s and 1830s. Uh, and I'm going to be honest, a lot of the people coming are like not the cream of the crop. Anytime you have westward expansion, this is an opportunity for reinvention. It's an opportunity to flee whatever legal troubles you have. It's an opportunity to flee your debt. Uh, and that's the kind of overwhelming sort of wave of immigration that's coming are land speculators and smugglers and disgraced politicians and lawyers and people that need to get away from their old lives. There are also lots of people looking for adventure, lots of people looking for new opportunities, but you can imagine like the kinds of roughnecks that are coming to settle this land. And of course, the Mexican government, when they say, hey, we want you to immigrate here, they have rules. They want them to learn Spanish. They want them to convert to Catholicism. They want them to be Mexican citizens. And many of these immigrants don't want to do any of that. So they come and they don't follow the laws set up. And many of them start just being flagrantly sort of dismissive of tax laws and tariffs. So this is going to cause a lot of tension. And then in 1830, it's going to get even more tense because Mexico is going to abolish slavery. If you're a white settler from the United States who has come to Texas, you're not happy about this. Most white American settlers that are coming want to continue the practice of enslavement. Many of them, if they're coming and acquiring land, are doing it to grow cotton. It's the only cash crop in Texas, and that is entirely dependent financially on enslaved labor. So all of a sudden, Mexico saying, uh-uh-uh-uh, you can't do this anymore, and the slave trade's illegal here, and now you've got people who are really angry about that. So it becomes sort of, hey, we want to govern ourselves but also because we have this institution, we very much intend to continue. Things get even more complicated with a man you mentioned named Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. He becomes president of Mexico. He runs on like a, hey, I'm, I'm a federalist. I'm, I wanna bring everybody together kind of platform. And then he gets into office and he's like, Haha, just kidding. I'm a dictator. I, I'm gonna have complete control. I am in charge. So Santa Ana is not, um, I don't like to say good guy or bad guy, but he's definitely as a political and military leader, very much a my way or the highway kind of guy. And he's going to engage in some pretty intense fighting even within Mexico. He's going to uh, build an army of pretty bloodthirsty fighters. Uh, they're allowed to pillage and rape throughout um, villages and uh, settlements in Mexico. And then Santa Ana repeals the Mexican constitution in 1835. By doing this, he basically centralizes and strengthens his new national government, and he basically helps push these settlers towards wanting to fight because he adds new, very restrictive policies um, against American settlers. He increases immigration enforcement. I do think it's important to note that many of these Americans who are coming are illegal immigrants, and he's going to add more kind of new taxes and tariffs. So it is not too surprising that in March of 1836, there's going to be what is actually the second political convention of this new Texas rebellion, and they will declare Texas independence. Texas independence is declared right about the same time that the Alamo falls. So this is all this battle and siege of the Alamo is happening at the same time that Texas has decided officially, we are going to be our own republic. Santa Ana is like, very adamant about keeping Texas. This is like very personal to him. He is not going to let this rebellion win, even though um, there will be uh, other Mexican generals that surrender and sort of retreat. Santa Ana personally vows that like he's going to come, he's going to take it, and he's going to lead the military expeditions. Texas has no organized army. <laughs> They're not really prepared for this, but they are really determined and they have a lot of passion. So it's got that kind of scrappy, we've got something to fight for element, a little bit like the American Revolution. 
Santa Ana is going to go into this with a really like no holds bar mentality. His um, sort of mindset is there's no surrender. There's no prisoner of war. If you have raised arms against the Mexican government, you're either dying on the battlefield or you're getting executed when it's over. So he's going in with a like, this is winner takes all. Um, and his Mexican army is better organized. They are better trained, but also they use forcible conscription. And so you've got a fighting force that's kind of been brought into this because they have to, because you've got this dictator telling you you have to fight. And many of them, particularly in 1836, are new recruits. So they're not as well trained. So that's how we are kind of building up towards the Alamo. Questions so far, Rebecca, comments? Uh, so Mexico has been separated from Spain now for a while, I would imagine. Okay. And there are, Santa Ana's government is based in Mexico City? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, okay. Um, and that's it. No, I'm good. So we got confidence men trying to raise an army to basically enshrine slavery because they don't, they want to continue to make a lot of money from cotton. All right. I'm good. I'm ready. Yeah. You got a lot of guys, a lot of guys new to this land, though, that are determined to fight it and, and make it its own thing. Right now, it is not necessarily that they want to be part of the United States. They want to be probably their own thing. So the Alamo itself, you were 100% right. It was a built as a Spanish mission. So before this is Mexico, this is Spain, right? It's part of um, the Spanish empire. Um, the name Alamo is likely derived from nearby cottonwood trees, which they are known in Spanish as Alamo. So that is what the cottonwood trees are called. So that is why it's called that. It starts out as a Spanish mission. It would later become a Spanish fort. It is near San Antonio de Bejar, which was the first civilian community to be established in what is Texas. So the first sort of like civilian city. We call it San Antonio today. It's in Bejar County um, or part of San Antonio is Bejar County. But for ease, we're probably just going to say San Antonio for the rest of this episode. But it's San Antonio de Bejar. Uh, really, as this fort is built up um, by the Spanish and then later the Mexicans, it's built to help protect residents against attacks from the Apache and the Comanche. So this is not like really meant to protect against a huge professional army. This is meant to protect women and children and civilians from raiding parties that were coming to steal cattle and ox and goods. It's mostly abandoned um, by the early 1800s. However, when Mexico gains its independence in 1821, uh, the Mexican government is going to use it as a garrison and they are gonna keep troops stationed there. The man in charge of the Alamo is a guy named General Martin Perfecto de Cos and he's Santa Ana's brother-in-law. So he's got a very close connection to uh, Senor Santa Ana. Um, during his time, he is going to improve this mission a little bit make it somewhat of a stronger fort. He's going to add ramps, defensive points, palisades, um, but all things said and done, we're talking about something that covers about three acres with 1,300 feet of wall that has to be defended. So it is a lot to have to defend if you get surrounded. The walls are two to three feet deep um, or thick, and it, de it depends on where you kind of are, but in most places, it's about nine to 12 feet tall. So tall, but not as tall as you might like if you were facing a military army. Um, eventually, um, General Cost is going to have to surrender. He's going to retreat and leave the Alamo. Um, there's been skirmishes between the Texans and the Mexicans, and eventually Cost is like, forget it. It's not worth it. We're leaving. When he leaves, he leaves behind 19 cannons, which will be very useful a little bit later. At the time, Santa Ana basically calls it an irregular fortification, hardly worthy of the name. And he sort of kind of waves off the fact that his brother-in-law has retreated. But I have to believe this gets under Santa Ana's skin, that they had this somewhat defensive position near San Antonio de Bejar, and his brother-in-law gives it up. And of course, you can imagine Americans, uh, Texans are going to move in. So October of 1835 is when sort of the battle for um, uh, Texas independence begins. December is when General Cost surrenders. So that is when they're leaving the Alamo and the San Antonio de Bejar region. Texans move in almost immediately. An engineer named Green Jameson is going to add catwalks inside these walls. The idea is that so anyone defending the Alamo can stand on the catwalk and fire rifles over the wall. This is 
good if someone's trying to scale the wall, but it also leaves your entire upper body very exposed. So this is going to be important later. Uh, he also is going to install the cannons that were left behind by General Koss, as well as cannons that they bring in sort of key positions. So they have a fairly decent artillery sort of protection set up. Jameson is going to write to Sam Houston, who is not ever at the Alamo, but Houston is the man organizing sort of the fight for Texas independence. He's like the leader of this movement, uh, this big, important politician. And um, Jameson is going to write to Sam Houston, and he brags about the improvements they've made. And he says, if we were attacked, we could whip them 10 to 1 with our artillery. Yeah, so that's that's sort of how people are feeling. They're feeling good about it. But then it's January 1826. They have less than 100 men stationed there. They have no money coming in and no supplies. So a man named James Neal, who at the, at the time is sort of the commander at the Alamo, reaches out to Sam Houston and says, hey, um, we're going to need some supplies, some clothing, some ammunition if we're going to be here. And he says, I don't know what Jameson was telling you. I don't know what other guys are saying. We could not withstand a siege more than four days. Santa Ana during this time um, is going to be building an army of more than 6,000 men, and he is marching them north towards San Antonio. Um, this is going to be a really slow march. It's winter. They have to cross the Rio Grande in like freezing temperatures. So it is a slow march. Uh, this is kind of like, I always think of it like this sort of drip, drip, drip leading up to what's going to become this battle. Um, and Santana does use that slow time to sort of train his army and train his recruits and strategize. So he's got the benefit of time. Those in the Alamo are just concerned with weathering through the winter with enough food. Houston uh, cannot really spare any of the supplies or anything that the men need. Uh, so he sends a guy named James Bowie with 30 men to remove the artillery, bring it back, and destroy the Alamo. That's Sam Houston's plan. We can't hold this. We know we can't hold this. Let's get those cannons. Let's get the rifles, and let's just get out before Santa Ana gets here. Now let's meet James, uh, sometimes known as Jim Bowie. Um, he is 40 years old. Um, in this year, 1836. He's from Kentucky, but he spent most of his life in Louisiana. He is very much, I think, the classic example of the kind of men who came to Texas. He was sort of like a confidence man is not quite right. But I mean, he's a land speculator. There's some unscrupulous land deals go down. Um, like there are court cases against Bowie and uh, sort of his land dealings. He's also a smuggler of enslaved people. Um, he takes advantage of sort of loopholes in some of the laws in Louisiana to essentially smuggle people um, in and out of slavery. Um, he does get quite a reputation as a fierce fighter. Um, he's known for his famous knife, the Bowie knife. Uh, and he's said to be the kind of guy you don't want to like get into a scrap with. Um, and there is just story after story of him taking on, you know, men and coming out on top. Uh, he moves to Texas in 1830. He marries the daughter of the Mexican vice governor of the province, and he becomes a Mexican citizen. And I think it's important to note that like this isn't unusual. We're talking about a lot of Americans coming as immigrants. Many of them, though, marry Mexicans. Many of them Inter intermingle into these families. And so it's not as black and white as sort of Americans, Mexican, Texas, Mexican, whatever. That's why the sort of the Tejano and the Texian words exist, because it really was becoming a blending of multiple cultures. Sadly, and very tragically, in 1833, he loses his wife and both of their children in the cholera epidemic. And that's something he never really recovers from. And um, I don't want to psychoanalyze anyone too much. But he starts drinking more heavily in 1833, and he's really gung-ho about this fight. And I think there's an element of he has nothing to lose. He has already lost the things that are most important to him. And so he is willing to give everything he has for this cause. So he joins up really uh, from the beginning, fighting for Texas independence. Um, Sam Houston trusts him to take out this, to undergo this mission. And so he shows up at the Alamo, and he's like, I'm here to take your cannons. And then he gets there and there's no animals. There's no mules or horses or oxen. And like, this is the 1830s. If you want to move a cannon, you really need like your draft animals to do that for you. Right, they can't put it on the back of a truck. 
they can't put on the back of the truck. You don't have enough men and manpower to haul them yourself. I mean, 30 men are not going to be able to haul 12 to or 19 huge cannons. And he gets to the Alamo and he's talking to Neil, the commander. And Neil all of a sudden convinces Bowie that the Alamo needs to be held because it's a very strategic location, right? It's near San Antonio de Bejar. We'll keep Santa Ana from going further north. And so all of a sudden Bowie shows up and he's being told by these guys, we have to hold this. And if we get enough men, we can do it. So he writes uh, a letter and says, the salvation of Texas depends in great measure on keeping Bejar out of the hands of the enemy. We will rather die in these ditches than give it up to the enemy. So Bowie really sort of buys into the fact that this has to be defended and it's important strategically. It's interesting to me that Sam Houston certainly doesn't feel that way, but Bowie does and he's got enough passion to sort of convince others. February 3rd, another very important man is going to show up. That's William Travis. He's going to arrive with 30 men and five days later, Davy, Davy Crockett, and his Tennessee volunteers arrive. So there had been about 100 men at the Alamo with these sort of waves of 20, 30 men at a time. We're building up to about 180 to 190 individuals uh, inside the Alamo. William Travis is 26, so he's considerably younger than Bowie. Uh, Travis and Bowie are sort of two of the big figures uh, within the Alamo, and they're, they're quite different. Uh, Travis is from South Carolina, moves to Alabama. He's a lawyer by trade. Um, he hears about all of this land speculation and dealing, and he's like, well, shoot, you're going to need lawyers to do all that paperwork. And that's what brings him um, out to Texas. He is going to buy land from Stephen F. Austin, who will appoint him as sort of a legal counselor. And um, this is sort of how Travis gets integrated into this new fight for Texas independence. He does eventually join and become an officer and a recruiter for the new Texan army. So February 12th, Santa Ana and his men have just crossed the Rio Grande. Um, there's quite a bit of snow. Um, sometimes if you read about the Alamo, they'll say it was the coldest winter ever in Texas, and that's just not true. Um, it was cold, but then a few days after this, it was back up towards like the 50s, um, 40s and 50s. So like, it's just typical February, right? It's cold, it's warm, it's cold, it's warm. Uh, February 11th, Neil, who had formerly been the commander of the Alamo leaves. And he leaves because he's determined to get more recruits and more supplies. So he's like, I'm leaving. I promise I'm going to come back. I just have to get us more men. And as soon as he leaves, there's a huge power struggle because you have Travis, who is the highest ranking regular army officer there. So even though he's 26, he outranks everyone else. He is who Neil leaves in charge. But you got Bowie. He's older, he's uh, got this reputation. And many of these men who are volunteers, um, they're not regular army enlisted. They're volunteers, they're part of these makeshift militias or they've just shot, signed an oath to say they're gonna help with the Texas fight. Um, these guys are going to elect Bowie as their leader instead. And so you sort of have this like moment where like Travis was technically left in charge and all the men go, yeah, no, we're not, we're not cool with that. We're going to take, uh, we're going to take Bowie. And Bowie gets very, very drunk to celebrate, which I find relatable. And the party gets pretty wild and out of control. And uh, Travis is very disappointed. And the next day or two, Bowie basically agrees to share command with Travis. He recognizes that maybe they need somebody with some real military experience and someone who has the connections within this new government. February 21st, Santa Ana reaches the banks of the Medina River, which is maybe about 25 miles or so from uh, San Antonio and from the Alamo. The men at the garrison have no clue. The men at the Alamo have no idea how close Santa Ana is. Uh, they all leave the Alamo undefended and they go into town into Bejar to attend a fiesta. Santa Ana hears about this right from his raiders from his scouts that they're all gone and he's like shoot we just need to go we need to go and take it but then there are heavy rains and that basically stops Santa Ana's uh, raids. So Texas weather once again. So um, here we are we're getting closer to what is going to become the siege of the Alamo and I think one thing people forget about this battle is it's it's not really like a day of fighting. It's days of a siege until the Alamo falls. So this is something that takes place over time, but we've been sort of building to it all winter. February 23rd, civilians and residents 
um, are fleeing Behar because the Mexican army has gotten very close. Some of them are going to flee to the Alamo because, right, that's you've got a fort there. That's where you would go if um, you were undergoing any other kind of attack. Some of them will flee and leave San Antonio de Bejar entirely. Texans in the Alamo are pretty doubtful that Santa Ana is close because they're like, well, that doesn't seem right. We haven't seen any sign of troop movements. Why would he come back here? So they don't actually think it's real. But when they actually station someone to look out, which they hadn't been doing, they confirm that Santa Ana's troops are one mile outside of Bejar. So Santa Ana in two days has covered a lot of ground, about 20 miles, and he has brought his troops within firing distance. They are totally unprepared at the Alamo. They are trying to herd cattle and stock into the Alamo. They're scrounging for food. They're going house to house, um, basically asking residents or taking what residents have left behind for food. And many of the men who have been essentially living in Behar bring their families to the Alamo when they show up to work that day. So there are going to be women, children, non-combatants who are here as well. Um, because as I was sort of saying, these people are here for a while and they're settling in, right? They're, they're bringing their families and having a good time. Uh, there are about 1,500 soldiers that are Mexican soldiers that are gonna take the town of Bejar. So um, Santa Ana has about three times that in his army, but he only needs 1,500 to take the town. He doesn't even really need that. It's an overwhelming show of force. And then they raise a red flag right in the center of town. And that means no quarter. It means Santa Ana is here for blood. And so that's that's it. William Travis responds by firing the biggest cannon um, that the Alamo has, basically to be like, all right, this is what you want. This is what we're going to do. Bowie decides to send the engineer, Jameson, to meet with Santa Ana to see if there's any sort of negotiation that can take place. And William Travis gets very angry and says, no, you don't just get to send a representative. I'm going to send a representative. So he sends someone to meet with Santa Ana. So Santa Ana meets with two representatives from the Texans. And I'm sure that from a military perspective, Santa Ana is going, okay, this does not show a great deal of organization or unity. Basically, Santa Ana wants unconditional surrender. Um, he wants to, you know, treat these men as enemy combatants, which means most likely executing the men that are there to fight. Um, obviously, the two representatives for the Texans are not going to accept this. They bring this back to the Alamo. Travis and Bowie now are very much united. We're not going to give in like this. We are going to fire this cannon together, and we're going to send a message to Santa Ana that we are going to do everything we can to hold the Alamo. And this is really where sort of the initial siege is going to begin. This takes several days um, and it's just relentless. Mexican batteries are just gonna move like inch by inch by inch. And they're just gonna fire nonstop. Honestly, for the first couple of days, that sort of battery doesn't do much damage. In fact, the Alamo is catching about 200 of these cannonballs that land inside and they're just firing them back. So it's sort of just this like volley of fire back and forth. Um, so for the first day or two, it's like, okay, we're just sort of firing back and forth. The artillery, as um, Jameson said, is holding strong. By February 26th, though, Travis is ordering the men to preserve their powder and ammunition because they're running out. So this is absolutely what um, Neil had sort of said. Yes, we can hold, but as we get four days into this, we're going to run out of supplies. There's going to be more that sort of happens inside the Alamo. Um, on February 24th, Bowie collapses from illness. So here he is, this fierce man known as this deadly fighter, and he is exceptionally ill. He is going to be bedridden really for the rest of the siege. Um, William Travis really has to take command. We also have the first casualties of um, the Alamo on February 24th. Two Mexican scouts are killed. So um, America or uh, the Texans sort of get their first uh, they get the first casualty, they get the first kill of the battle. And over the next couple of days, um, more um, Mexican soldiers are killed as they get closer and closer and closer. Temperatures drop, it does get quite cold, um, kind of towards the end of February, although it'll warm back up in March. By March 1st, we're several days into the siege, Mexican casualties are nine dead and four wounded, while the Texans have only lost one man, possibly killed while they were burning huts uh, in San Antonio de Bejar to keep the soldiers from quartering there. At the same time, Santa Ana has blocked 
the roads to the two sort of nearby towns, Gonzales and Goliad. This makes supplying the Alamo nearly impossible. Um, he has used his troops to blockade and keep anybody from getting there. And that's supplies, it's ammunition, and it's more men. Reinforcement cannot make it to the Alamo. Travis is going to send out multiple pleas, multiple letters. The most famous one is written on February 24th. It is addressed to the people of Texas and all Americans in the world. This is going to become probably the most famous letter correspondence from the Alamo. He's going to write, fellow citizens and compatriots, I am besieged by a thousand or more of the Mexicans under Santa Ana. I have sustained a continual bombardment and cannonade for 24 hours and have not lost a man. The enemy has demanded a surrender at discretion. Otherwise, the garrison are to be put to the sword if the fort is taken. I have answered the demand with a cannon shot and our flag still waves proudly from the walls. I shall never surrender or retreat. Then I call on you in the name of liberty, of patriotism, and everything dear to the American character to come to our aid with all dispatch. The enemy is receiving reinforcements daily and will no doubt increase to three or four thousand or in four or five days. If this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his own honor and that of his country. Victory or death. And this, I mean, this letter circulates around the world. Um, many, by the time many Americans read this in their newspapers back home, this is all done and, and over, um, or it's too late for anyone to really do anything. But I think the myth building of the Alamo builds, it starts with this moment, right? This letter that these men will fight to the death. They're not going to give it up. Um, this is going to be um, the last stand, as you said earlier. And he's absolutely right. Santa Ana just keeps adding more and more men. So now he's got the Mexican army's got about 2000 men outside the Alamo. So it's just more men and more men and more men. Uh, Sam Houston has not been entirely negligent of the Alamo, I should say. There had been some attempts to get reinforcements of men to the fort. Um, a man named Colonel James Fannin, who is probably one of the most, um, beleaguered uh, figures related to the Alamo was supposed to bring men from Goliad. Um, but he just had days of indecision of like, should we go? Are we going to go? Let's go. We're not sure. Are there Mexican soldiers? Can we make it there? And after like days of waffling, he marches his men one mile and then he aborts the mission and turns back. Fannin, uh, not exactly a brave move. Now, of course, he's going to blame his officers. He's going to say that they were just organized and unprepared, and they didn't have good um, information on the location of where the Mexican army was. The enlisted men and officers are going to blame Fannin and basically say he's a coward and a chicken. If Fannin had gotten there, that would have been 320 more men and several wagons worth of supplies. So, we're still not talking the thousands that the Mexicans had, but 300 more men would have uh, like doubled and more what was at the Alamo. March 3rd, a thousand more Mexican soldiers arrive and there's a big celebration. So going into these last couple days, 3,100 Mexican soldiers outside the Alamo that has 189, 190, 191 men. I don't like those odds at all. Yeah. This is, it's really kind of staggering when you really look at the numbers of it. Davy Crockett is sent out to find Fannin's men because William Travis has been sitting here at the Alamo every day saying, Fannin's gonna be here, Fannin's gonna be here. We, we, we know Fannin's coming. And now nah, Fannin's chickened out. But um, when Crockett goes looking for Fannin, he does discover some men, small pockets of men from Goliad and Gonzalez, some who fled from Fannin, and they do manage to break um, the lines of the Mexican army and get back to the Alamo. So there's a small little wave of reinforcement that comes. Um, these are just, I think, some incredibly brave folks who didn't want to, you know, abandon these men. March 4th, Santa Ana is ready to attack. His officers want to wait for two more large cannons to arrive, um, so he's going to um, hold off just a little bit longer. A local woman who was probably Bowie's cousin-in-law was sent to negotiate a surrender. 
Travis is not an idiot. He knows that this is going to be a slaughter. And so he's willing to send someone else and he uses a woman uh, to hopefully kind of speak to Santa Ana's softer side. Santa Ana doesn't want a bloodless victory. He doesn't want, oh, they just gave up and we didn't even get to fight them. He is desperate for glory. This is a man who has a lack of popularity in his own country. So he wants that like powerful military achievement. And he says, no dice. The assault is going to begin on March 6th. So be ready to die. Santa Ana, however, does have a modicum of sympathy for how complicated this is. He is going to talk to his troops and he allows any Mexican troops who are from San Antonio de Bejar to be excused from the front lines. So they are not fighting against what is essentially their own friends and family. So there's an acknowledgement here that this is, this is civil, it's a civil war. These are people fighting against people they've lived alongside and known, and in some cases are married to or are connected to through marriage. March 5th, giant myth alert here. If you know a little bit about the Alamo, if you've watched a movie or two about it, there's always a scene where William Travis comes out and he takes his sword and he draws a line in the sand. And he's like, this is it, man. We are going to fight and we are going to die. And if you're with me, cross this line. And everybody does. Um, there's no evidence at all that this ever happens. Um, there are people who are interviewed about this. There are final letters and correspondence that come out. And um, I don't think he drew a line in the sand. The reality of this is Travis probably did gather the men and say, the attack is happening, and it's understood that he did give people perhaps an opportunity to escape or attempt escape if they wanted to. The last verified person that we know leaves the Alamo before the battle was a courier named James Allen. He was tasked with carrying personal messages from Travis and the other men. So we do have uh, from the Alamo, from those last days, correspondence and letters that James Allen carries out. At 10 p.m. on the night of March 5th, Santa Ana stops the bombardment. So they stop firing their cannons and uh, Texans almost immediately fall asleep because this has been going on for like 13 days, 12, 13 days. They have been bombarded by cannon fire and then it stops. So it's almost like, even if you don't want to fall asleep, you have to, because it's just quiet for the first time in almost two weeks. And it's a cloudy night, so it's nice and dark. Uh, and Santa Ana is going to stop firing his cannons and move his 2,000 troops right into position to scale and take the Alamo. On the morning of March 6th, pretty much just as dawn breaks, sentinels that were uh, set up outside to keep watch were killed in their sleep, which basically allows the Mexican soldiers to get right up to the wall. They're going to start sounding their bugles and shouting, which is how everyone inside knows the battle has begun. At the very beginning of this, the Mexican army is actually at a disadvantage. Santa Ana is using a column formation um, to approach, which doesn't make a lot of sense given the way the Alamo walls are sort of set up. Because if you're in a long column going back, your guys in the back can't fire because they'd hit your soldiers in the front. Um, so only the guys in the front can fire. So um, that actually means you've got a lot of guys that are sort of firing blindly and you have a lot of uh, friendly fire that's happening. These tight formations of columns also is pretty easy for the artillery to just bombard. So you're at the cannon and you're, fight, you're just gonna fire in the middle of that column. That's what you're gonna do and just try to take out as many men. So Santa Ana is like throwing a lot more men at this than he probably needs to. And he's putting them into formations that ensures bloodshed. All he cares about is a big victory. He could not care less about minimizing Mexican losses. And I think that speaks to Santa Ana and who he is in this whole thing. The Texans have almost no ammunition at this point. So they are filling cannons with nails, horseshoes, door hinges, pretty much anything they can find, which if you're the guy on the receiving end of what's coming out of that cannon, it's bloody. And the first wave of Mexicans get hit with what is like scattershot? It's really grim. Eventually though, the Texans have to start firing over the wall. So they're on those catwalks. Now they're fully exposed, right? And they're firing down as the Mexican scale. 
This works a little bit, but you have to reload your rifle. This is the problem, right? And as soon as you have to reload, there you are fully exposed. Um, it's not gonna take very long for the Mexican army to get over these walls. William Travis is actually one of the first Texans to be killed. This is not a man who's hanging back and commanding from the rear. He is at the walls, he is fighting. Um, of course, sources vary on exactly how Travis dies, but he's shot either while he's firing into soldiers below, so firing over the wall. Some sources though say he shot but lives long enough to actually battle with his sword a bit and kill a Mexican officer before succumbing to his injuries, but he's right there defending the walls. It takes probably all things said and done about 20 minutes for the Mexican army to scale the walls and pour into the mission. So this is happening really, really quickly. And they're going to seize control of the Alamo's biggest cannon, as well as much of the other artillery. Most of the Texans at this point are going to fall back to the barracks and into the chapel. This includes, of course, where women and children are hiding within the chapel, within the sacristy. So you do have Again, non-combatant civilians who are sort of just waiting out in the middle of the slaughter, hoping that they will remain safe. Um, the last group of Texans that are left out in the open fighting are Davy Crockett and his men. Um, they're defending a low wall that sort of is just outside the chapel area. So they're trying to defend the church where many people at this point are hiding out. They are close range fighting with the Mexican officers. At this point, there's no time to bother loading a gun. So they're using their guns as clubs and they're basically engaging in knife fights. So this is hand-to-hand -hand combat. After a pretty strong volley of gunfire from the Mexican armies, the men that are left here will also fall back to the church. It is very unclear when Davy Crockett is killed. And this is another, I think, example of just the myth building that goes on around the Alamo. Crockett is often portrayed um, as taking on 10, 20 men, going down after this long protracted fight. Um, we have a lot of different accounts. It's very possible he's just killed pretty quickly. There's also some evidence to suggest that he actually survives surrenders and was executed by Santa Ana. So um, we don't know definitively uh, what happens. I think probably sometime in this fight, he goes down. Basically for the next hour, the Mexican army just works its way strategically through the Alamo garrison. They basically are going through the barracks, through all the different little areas within this sort of um, mission setup, and they just blow the door off. They fire a volley of muskets and then they charge in for hand-to-hand -hand combat. So there's really no um, surviving this. It's just they have every advantage at this point. Bowie dies in his bed, most likely. Again, many varying accounts. Um, one of Bowie's uh, family members, his mother-in-law said, you most certainly would not have found him with a bullet hole in his back, right? That this was not a man who was gonna turn his back and flee. This was a man who was gonna fight it out. It is most likely he was in bed, sort of propping himself against the wall, using his pistols and his knife to fight off as many as he could. The last group of Texas men to fall are 11 men who were manning two cannons right outside the chapel, right outside the sacristy, protecting the women and children. This battle is over by 6.30 a.m. So yeah, it's, you know, dawn, so maybe 5 a.m., uh, maybe slightly earlier, and it's over at 6.30. I think this is one of the things about the Alamo that tends to get lost is we tend to think of it as a big, long battle. What it is is an unrelenting siege for almost two weeks and a very short, very bloody battle. Um, and that's how it plays out. It is believed that there were probably five or six Texas men who do surrender, and they were held as prisoners of war for a short amount of time. Um, this is not at all what Santa Ana wants. Santa Ana will ultimately um, order that they be executed. So um, there's really no combatants that survive this. Santa Ana, in his initial report back to his government, is going to claim that they killed 600 Texans and only 30 Mexican soldiers were killed. Okay, Rebecca. Wait a minute. How likely, how likely do you think it is that he is correct? Considering here? you put the estimate at like 180, very unlikely. Yeah, 600 men, and that he only had 30 casualties also, on his side. Also, given that they're fighting literally to their death, and they know that they're fighting to the death, I'm guessing they're going to take more than 30 um, Mexicans with them. So, yeah. Yeah. And he puts way more men on the ground than he needs to, which just statistically adds to more death. Even his own secretary who submits this report 
repudiate Santa Ana's numbers. Most historians today put the number killed uh, at, at the Alamo for Texans at about 180 to 250 because we there were civilian men, uh, men from San Antonio to Bejar that are there um, who may or may not have been combatants or may or may not have joined the fight. So it's very hard to get an exact number, but I would say safely probably 180 to 200 is about where we're at. Mexican casualties are put closer to 400 to 600. And when you think about that, he puts 3000 men on the ground and he loses probably 600. Um, that's a lot. And it's a lot that he probably didn't need to lose. Uh, and it has a lot to do with sort of that um, formation that he's using and um, sort of the way in which he approaches um, the Alamo itself, kind of having these men in these long rows and long columns. So um, this is not without some loss of life um, for the Mexican army. Um, Santa Ana would spare the life of an enslaved man named Joe, who was um, owned by William Travis, um, and he does this in a pretty blatant attempt to convince other enslaved people in Texas to support the Mexican government. So Santa Ana uh, is not unsavvy to some of the motivations of this fight and some of what Texas would be like if it doesn't, if it's no longer under Mexican rule. And he is really going to try to use a little propaganda and try to say, look, you know, I spared the life of this person. It was that he was enslaved. It's not his fault. He had to be here. Um, and he really tries to sort of rile up enslaved people to fight for the Mexican government. He's going to, Santa Ana is going to personally interview all of the surviving non-combatants, so the women and children, and he does give some women uh, some small financial recompense, so they get a little bit of money. Uh, some of them get some supplies, but they're basically sent off to tell the world that his army is unbeatable, right? He wants these women to go out and say, look, you cannot beat Santa Ana. He's the king. He's the best. All things said and done, about 20 women and children survive this assault and leave the Alamo. Here's what happens. Um, the impact of this is not at all what Santa Ana wants. Santa Ana thinks that by doing this, he's beaten the Texans and they're gonna retreat and cower. But what he did was slaughter 200 men defending a poorly defended fort. And that's gonna anger a lot of people. So Santa Ana, just not even oh, about a month later, four weeks later, he's going to be camped out uh, and the Texas army is basically going to ambush him, take his camp, and they're going to fight what's known today as the Battle of San Jacinto and the Texans win it in 20 minutes. I've heard of the Battle of San Jacinto. They've got a big monument. They have a very similar to our yes. Washington monument, the Battle of San Jacinto. Um, remember the Alamo is the battle cry, right? This is just like, it's like, remember the main, it's like any other time, right? When you have people that are like taken, um, people that are sort of martyrs to the cause, they're going to inspire the next wave of fighting. Sam Houston is gonna be pretty savvy. He captures Santa Ana and he could have executed him. Um, and that's probably what a lot of people would have done. He spares his life, um, which makes him look like a pretty fair, benevolent, good guy. And then he goes, okay, I saved your life. So now you have to go. You have to leave here, take your troops out and do not come back. Basically by pushing out Santa Ana, this legitimizes this new Republic of Texas, legitimizes the new government. And this basically is how Texas independence is won. So while the Alamo is a tragedy, right? It really is sort of this last stand where there's, there's so few survivors and it's just an absolute slaughter. It is going to spur such support for the cause of Texas independence, not just within Texas, but across the United States and around the world. And it really does motivate this ragtag Texas army to really take Santa Ana and his troops. And that is what allows for the establishment of the Republic of Texas. Now, I'm from Texas, um, as, as is well noted. Uh, I, I think Texas is a great place in a lot of ways. However, the establishment of the Republic of Texas is going to have some serious impact. The constitution of this new republic forbades free blacks from living in Texas permanently. So basically you can, you can travel through here if you need to come and conduct business, fine, but you are not welcome here. Individual enslaved people could only be freed by a congressional order. So if you were a slave owner and you wanted to say upon your death, um, free um, the people you had enslaved, you had to get congressional permission from 
the government of Texas to do that. And then let's say that you got that, those newly freed people had to leave Texas immediately. So they had to leave the only place they may have ever known. Women lose significant legal rights in this new republic because they had, um, under the Mexican government and previously the Spanish government, sort of had a more traditional Spanish law system that had a little bit more egalitarian ideas about property ownership in particular and financial uh, ownership. Once the Republic of Texas is established, they adopt a lot of the English common law practices, which basically um, cut women out in owning just about anything. This is also true for Tejanos. Tejanos are going to start to face new legal restrictions and discrimination as well. So what is being established um, in this new Republic is not a utopia. And I think it's important to note that. Um, it is going to make Texas resemble much more of what was sort of the old kind of British system in many ways, or sort of the old, um, you know, they're gonna bring a lot of those ideas from this part uh, from the United States, from the United States in this era to Texas. Um, so it does really radically change Texas as well. And it's going to change how Texas grows over the next um, few decades. And naturally, um, this fight for Texas independence is not going to do anything for the relationship between Mexico and the United States. Um, Things will grow increasingly tense. Texas is going to be annexed by the U.S. and eventually admitted as a state in 1845. So not even about nine years later, we become uh, a state, uh, part of the or admitted to the Union of the United States. And that basically sparks the Mexican-American War. And then from there, you can really just uh, domino the impacts of Mexican-American War, how that's going to impact um, certainly uh, our more of our push out west, but also the Civil War, uh, and on and on and on. So this is an important moment, I think, not just certainly in Texas history, but this is really kind of an important moment in American history. We're really uh, hitting some growing pains as a country. And what happens in Texas is, I think, going to be, an, as Texas establishes its republic, it's going to be a pretty good bellwether for what happens as we continue to add more states to the Union leading up to the Civil War. Tensions over slavery, tensions over rights, tensions over whose land is this? Um, and Texas is a good, I think, example of what we see all throughout the Midwest and the West. Oh, how about that? I love it. I didn't know almost any of those things. That's so exciting. Oof. Questions, comments, notes, I Rebecca. Had, I just, I'm so overwhelmed. That was so much. I would have thought it was the Mexican War, but I did not know that it was, I didn't actually know there was a Texas War for Independence. <laughs> um, and yeah, no, I'm, I'm kind of, I knew that Sam Houston could not have been in the Alamo because I know that Sam Houston goes on to do other things. So if everybody died... Sam Houston, I, I thought that he was involved, but I didn't know quite how. So that kind of clears that up. Because um, I know Sam Houston lives a lot longer and does. Yeah, Sam Houston things. will live. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he is going to be a player as we lead into the Civil War. Uh, no, he lives, uh, uh, he dies in the middle of the Civil War, but he lives quite a long time after the Siege of the Alamo. He will go on to be the first and the third president of the Republic of Texas. Um, he's going to be one of the first individuals to represent Texas in the U.S. Senate. So um, he, Sam Houston is obviously a very important figure in sort of the establishment of Texas, the Republic, and then the state of Texas. Um, so much of, I think, what people learn about the Alamo does come from pop culture. Um, I think about the ballad of Davy Crockett, right? Um, I think about the Disneyfication of Davy Crockett and his story. Um, there have been so many film versions of the Alamo, not one of which I think in good confidence I can say is like, probably exceptionally well sourced from a historical standpoint. There's some good documentaries out there. The very first film version made of this though was in 1911. <laughs> so that's how much I think the Alamo had captured even kind of uh, public memory in, even in the early 20th century was when we we're just starting to make silent films. Um, they made one about the Alamo. And my um, other question is about Davy Crockett. Like I've heard of Davy Crockett. There's a whole song about Davy Crockett, but like, was he famous before this or is this because? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Davy, Davy Crockett is sort of famous before this. He's sort of uh this American folk hero, he'd been a politician. He um, represented Tennessee in the um, 
in the House of Representatives in Congress. Um, so, you know, he had been sort of a figure, uh, as it were, uh, serving in the Tennessee militia. Um, he serves under Andrew Jackson at one point, right? Um, during the War of 1812. So like, he's a pretty well-known figure, um, but he gets pretty, <laughs> Davy Crockett gets amped to move to Texas after Martin Van Buren uh, becomes president. <laughs> that's sort of like the thing that kind of gets him going. Um, he's a big uh, supporter of Andrew Jackson, but when Jackson's sort of like out of the White House, Crockett's like, yeah, no, I'm kind of done with the US. Maybe we go out West and go to Texas. Uh, okay, because I've heard of Crockett, but I've never heard of Travis. And the only the reason I've heard of Bowie is the knife. So I did, yeah. was wondering, he must've been famous before this. This is fascinating. And does the Alamo, like if I go to San Antonio, ever is it still the whole thing like is the whole alamo still there so the alamo is very much um a a tourist destination today a historic and cultural site um you can visit the alamo there has been pretty extensive restoration work done um of course uh so you are going to see pretty much what existed it is very much also like much like washington dc and the white house the alamo is in the center of a pretty bustling part of san antonio san antonio is the second largest city in Texas, it's up there, a third largest city in Texas. Um, it's like one of the six largest cities in the country. It's it's up there, it's a big bustling city. And so it's sort of um, a bit of a disconnect where you're like crossing these busy intersections. And then all of a sudden there's like this like historic structure. But you can see there's some replicas um, obviously and things that have been reproduced. Um, but you can pretty much see the Alamo um, and they do a lot of programming and um, sort of reenactments and things of that nature there. Um, there's also a museum. Um, it's, it's, it's excellent. You know, it's sort of the shrine of Texas Liberty is how it builds itself today. Um, but there is really fascinating history. They've done some really, in more recent years, really interesting archaeological work to better understand the era prior to sort of the battle itself. Um, there's also new memorial. There are somewhat more contemporary memorials and acknowledgments there as well. Um, and I would definitely, if people are in Texas, I would recommend um, a visit to the Alamo. Uh, and in our show notes, I'll include a couple um, links to um, several pages on the Alamo's website uh, where they kind of break down some of the myths and legends we sort of dispelled today, um, where they really kind of break down the battle itself. I also uh, absolutely have to mention a book that was a great resource for this episode. And also, I think just really, really good reading. It's called Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth uh, by Brian Burroughs, Chris Tomlinson, and Jason Sanford. It was published last year. Um, and it really is one of the most in-depth explorations of how the issue of slavery impacts our understanding of the fight for Texas independence and how much that influenced people. It also really does just work to sort of dispel and break down some of the myths of the men who are there at the Alamo uh, and sort of how the battle itself plays out. So it's a really excellent book. Um, and I, I really recommend um, for those who maybe have just seen the John Wayne movie, which is just terrible, um, or have only sort of seen little kind of clips of the Alamo, um, a book like Forget the Alamo really, um, it's excellent scholarship and uh, really kind of helps us reframe our understanding. I have that book. I've had it on my list at the library for months, but because I didn't want to learn anything about the Alamo before recording this, I've had to keep like pushing it off, but now I can get it and read it. <laughs> It's excellent. And as you can imagine, um, the book itself and the author stirred up oh, some controversy I last bet. year. Um, but I have to say, um, like so many things, if you read it, it's 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 really well-researched scholarship. And um, it's some of this is, is stuff that we know, right? We know um, because we have historical evidence. So um, they're just piecing it together in a way that I think is compelling. Awesome. This was really great, Becca. You did such a great job. You were excellent. I learned so many things. The Alamo. You got your Texas on there. I love it. Um, <laughs> and it is so funny. I mean, we take Texas history, fourth and seventh grade, at least that's what it was like when I was going through school. And the Alamo is a big part of it, um, as is Gonzalez and Goliad. And there are lots of other little bits of the Texas fight for independence we could talk about. But it wasn't until I was older that I really sort of understood a lot of the the depth of it right mm -hmm. um 
who these men were, how just brutal it is, how long they face down their own sure. demise and death, and then really understanding how um, no prisoners yeah. taken Santa Anna is going to yeah, be about this. That's amazing to me. I just chilling. yeah, chilling. Yeah, this is really great. Um, this has been so fun. I've learned so many things, and you t- did such a great job telling me all about this. So, um, thank you so very much, and uh, thank you to our listeners for coming along with us and hearing a little bit about Texas history and the Alamo. Um, as always, if you have questions or comments, or you want to pitch the pod, uh, please contact us online. We're uh, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram uh, at tourguidetellall, and we're on the Twitters at tourguidetell. So please uh, let us know your thoughts. If you enjoyed hearing about the Alamo, we want to know that. If you have comments, we want to know that too. And I can think of at least three different topics from here that I would like to explore later in further depth, including Sam Houston, because he sounds fast. From what I know of Sam Houston, he sounds fascinating. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting figures. I mean, we could really uh, go a little more in depth on Davy Crockett, especially because it overlaps with someone we do talk about here and there, uh, Andrew Jackson and uh, some of these other figures. Well, we will be back with you guys in February. We've got uh, February's Black History Month, so we've got a couple of great episodes lined up for February. March is Women's History Month, uh, so we've got some stuff lined up for that. And so it's going to be a good winter, y'all. Get ready. Thank you guys for coming along with us. Bye. Thank you guys. Bye.